the quickest way to get the entire space banned in the world is to move all of world finance onto Ethereum tomorrow, onto transparent Ethereum, because in two days, the NSA will go, wait, the fuck? China now does financial analysis like we do over the US financial system. This is not a good idea. We should kill this entire system immediately. Like no country wants a fully private system, wants a fully transparent system because it just leaks so much of your citizens' data to potential enemies. Um, so I think to really get mainstream traction, we need privacy-preserving tech. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by AngelBlock. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Oh my God, what a past few days, what a past week it's been. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem. Yeah, indeed. Uh, You're listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week uh, we dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders through bull and bear markets, through, through weeks like we're going through right now, through all the good times and the bad times. To truly understand, like down the road from now, decades from now, we're going to look back on these shows as like the early days of the internet. And if you wanted to know what was happening during those exact weeks, months, and years, this is the type of show that they'd be listening to. And most of the time, it's really amazing being on this wild roller coaster with you for the last 10 years or in longer. But like on weeks like to this, when you have like just industry players collapsing like dominoes, it, it feels like it feels like the 2008 of the crypto world. It kind of makes me a little bit nervous. Good morning my, to, my, to my guest. I'll introduce you in a second, but good morning, Adrian Brink. Thanks for, for coming on Untold Stories. Does it, does it feel like that for you as well? So I wasn't around to my ducks. I came, so I'm the Ethereum generation. I sort of first got into the space in 2016, writing my graduate thesis. Um, this feels somewhat early to sort of the last major collapse. And after like the ICO boom, um, yeah. but so yeah, to me, my comparison is to the after ICO boom, but it wasn't driven so much back then by like players collapsing. So I think for like the even earlier people, it's more similar to like Mount Gox and things like that. I want to like zoom out on this discussion. I don't want to get into like the nitty gritty details of what's been happening because it's very timely and and things are happening on a literally an hour to hour basis at this point. People are refreshing the news cycles and stuff. But I want to like zoom this out on like a and have a discussion today on like products and apps that centralized uh, centralized financials, let's just call them CFI within crypto, have brought us and and why it has taken decentralized applications, protocols, and networks like yourselves because they're decentralized takes a little bit longer to build those same type of products, right? And I want to like kind of zoom out and talk about. Uh, a lot of that and um, talk about really cool things that, that you're doing, like self-sovereign communities and really bringing it back down to the into the people. Uh, but to give people, uh, to give listeners a little bit of background of you, you're the CEO of Heliax, co-founder of the Anoma Project and a member of the Anoma Foundation Council. Prior to Heliax, you co-founded Scaled and eventually sold Cryptium Labs, an infrastructure operator that provided uh, proof of stake validation from bunkers in the Swiss in the Swiss Alps, really cool stuff there. We, I can't wait to get into into stuff. You worked as you know on on R and D that upgraded layer one protocols. Uh, you were an engineer, 
and you were um, uh, an engineer working on some of my favorite protocols, the, the Cosmos stack, the Tendermint protocols. Um, you know, uh, uh, you, we could talk about some like e-voting systems that you worked on helping the Catalan people uh, during the, a few years ago during the, the huge referendum that was over there. Actually, I just traveled back from Barcelona. What an amazing place, oh, right? I know. Shit. Spain, Spain is wild. Um, it's wild. I think part in Europe, it's like Barcelona is one of my favorite cities. It combines all the good food with nice people and cheap cost of living. Um, so overall, fantastic place to be. Really? Like, I, I wasn't expected. I, I usually try to like, I set it as a personal challenge when I'm traveling somewhere to try to like learn as much as I can about it and like have an expectation of what what I can expect. And I was just completely blown away by 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 just all of Catalonia and Spain. I didn't really travel yeah. in Spain, but I travel out around that whole area and it was just amazing. Um did you drive into the mountains? So in the went into the mountains. Yeah, visited some 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 Cava wineries, which which I I'm getting yeah. like shipments now in, which is really amazing. <laughs> so what's I've your? Done this is some of this well. You know, if you look at um, uh, I don't know, it's so it's so much fun. If you look at uh, um, what you've kind of uh, your background and and what you've been up to, tell me how you first started building and what originally attracted you to uh, uh to working on a crypto project what did you do before um so i was in um college so so back in 2016 i was writing my graduate thesis didn't in cs and didn't really know what i wanted to do came across this ethereum thing went to a couple of local meetups and said, actually this thing looks pretty dope um i should spend more time on this and i ended up writing my thesis on secure e-voting which if you're from cs every computer scientist will tell you put nuclear reactors on the internet, but never ever make voting electronic. Um, because horrendous, like pretty much so far, all the voting systems have been, or electronic voting systems are horrendous. Um, but so I was like, okay, we can combine the censorship resistance of Ethereum with e-voting systems because European ID cards have RSA keys embedded in them. So we can like, European ID cards can create signatures. Um, and this was in the backdrop of the Catalan independence referendum and also the Arab Spring, where the governments violently suppressed the elections. Right? I was like, you know, if we have a system like Ethereum, we can actually build secure e-voting systems um, to allow people to see from their government. Because if you and the 95% of the other people around you know that all of you believe want to do the same thing, there's really nothing any central government is going to be able to do in order to prevent this thing from happening. Um, so yeah, this is how I got into the space. Ended up joining Tendermint or the Cosmos stack as the third core, third core protocol engineer. Um, because for me, the entire thesis to this day still makes no sense. The fact that everyone goes, oh, there's going to be one blockchain to rule them all. There will be so many blockchains. Like Switzerland will have a blockchain and there will, like the New York Stock Exchange is going to have its own blockchain. The entire financial system will just be interoperable, interconnected blockchains. Because fundamentally, as a human, you want to be able to pick different security zones, right? Like, if I, I don't necessarily trust global Ethereum or global Bitcoin, but I may trust my five people in my village to run my blockchain. And like, that's a valid choice that I should be able to make as a user. We shouldn't force everyone into the same security model. Um, so I'm massively in the multi-chain ecosystem. Um, anyway, this is a short discourse. Yeah. 
what is that? I mean, what does that ecosystem look like? Because at the end of the day, you know, people are looking at Solana this week as something that could have been a decentralized blockchain, but because it's attached to so many centralized players that help launch it, it's going downhill right now. What about, do you think it's going to be uh, an Ethereum and then all the layer twos on top of it that are going to be winning, winning the day? Are we, are we looking at um, blockchains that have that SDK to all be uh, interconnected with each other, which is what Cosmos is? And can you kind of, kind of get into that and explain it a little bit how that works? Yeah. So, I mean, on the interoperability side, right? Um, IBC is not Cosmos specific. You can use IBC to connect Polkadot to Nia. Um, IBC has nothing to do with the Cosmos SDK. IBC is only because the third co-founder of us, Chris Goes, he wrote the IBC protocol back in the Cosmos days um, as a lead architect there. Um, so IBC just requires a fast finality light client on either side. Um, so it's just going to be the protocol to connect any blockchain to any other blockchain. Um, I personally find it fairly doubtful that everyone is going to sort of go into L2s and use Ethereum security. Because fundamentally, not everyone, like, if you, my parents don't trust ETH2, right? They don't trust global proof of stake security for Ethereum. They trust their local state, um, which is like where they live, it's the right choice because their local state is actually trustworthy. Um, but so they need to have an ability to opt into a security model that they understand and that they care about. Um, so I think what's much more likely to happen is actually that blockchains are going to look a lot more like countries where we're going to have many different blockchains um, and users can roam between these different blockchains. And my hope is, especially with Onoma, that we sort of have a unified protocol stack and architecture that um, can be deployed in different security models. Because one of the very nice things when you think, for example, on like mobile phones is I can buy a mobile phone in Switzerland and then fly to the States and my mobile phone still works. It, but the reason why this works, it's fundamentally that mobile phones, we agree on the underlying architecture for the underlying protocol. So I can take sort of my edge device and roam in different security zones. Um, and I think it's going to look, this is what we're aiming for with Anoma, that like there can be global Anoma, there can be um, Anoma as an L2 to Ethereum. They can be global, uh, Anoma as an L2 to Solana. And then end users can pick which security zone they care about and take all their assets with them without having to change sort of the understanding of how they, of how they interact with the underlying protocol. Okay, so I see, I, I see kind of what you're doing here. And essentially, the same way Anoma works the same way IBC does. So you have these uh, uh, layer one like fundamental blockchains Ethereum is one example. Uh, Polygon is another example. Uh, Near, you just you have so many of them, right? A lot of them, and so each and then you have Bitcoin, which you know kind of is separate. Each one has to specifically subscribe to adopting the Anoma protocol and or the IBC in order to allow its its blockchain to have the uh, upgrades and the the different type of, uh, uh, you know, you have like your private bartering system, private transactions, things like that. Is that kind of where it's go going to go? Kind of. Um, so, I mean, this is more on the deployment perspective for Anoma as an architecture. Um, but practically speaking, I think sort of going back a step on what does Anoma actually do um, outside of, sort of where you deploy it and what security zones you deploy it. 
you can so I think of blockchains as we are currently we have we are currently in generation two blockchains. So we had Bitcoin and that was crypto settlement and that was the first attempt at blockchains. And then we had many Bitcoin-like forks, right? Monero, Zcash, Litecoin. But it's always the same kind of model that they exposed. It's scriptable yep. settlement. And then with Ethereum, we got the second generation. We got programmable settlement. But when I look at something like Nia, Avalanche, Solana, to me, it's all like Ethereum. Because fundamentally, what users are, what developers and users can do with these systems is exactly the same as they can do in Ethereum. Like there's virtually no difference except like some gas costs, some security assumptions, some speed, some underlying consensus change. But like when you think of what a DAP looks like, it's a sequentially executed um, imperative program that is being run, right? And it just does programmable settlement. Um, and I think Anoma really hears the third generation of architectures where you not only have programmable settlement, but you also have programmable uh, uh, decentralized counterparty discovery and distributed solving. Because when you look at most modern applications actually that exist within sort of whether right. this is Lightning on Bitcoin or like even things like uh, CowSwap on Ethereum or Optimism on Ethereum, it's always a model that individual users don't have transactions. They don't have something that can be settled in, in sort of in the settlement layer. They have an intent. They have a partial thing for which they need some sort of counterpart discovery. And generally the way this is solved right now, especially sort of in things like Optimism or OpenSea, is that there's a central Web2 server that's running somewhere that everyone sends these signed messages to, and then the server receives them, matches them with each other, does some solving, and then settles this on some underlying system. Uh, so really, this is the architectural innovation for Noma. And then once you have this architectural innovation, you can decide where you want to deploy this as a so into your security zone. And this could be global Anoma L1. This can be Anoma as an L2 on some system. Um, but yeah, I think this is sort of from with slightly more context. Are you are you saying that like decentralized applications dApps of the future can run extra blockchain, meaning that they're running outside of a blockchain and can almost like choose which chain that it needs to, you know, for security purposes or or whatever? Yes. Like this is going to be the actual model, I think, in the future, where it's like Oh wow. Um I as a because like this is what's happening in the real world. Like when you think about it, like this is what um, like I want to settle like a block trade between the New York Stock Exchange and the London Stock Exchange. These two things could be two blockchains, but I as a user, I care like about issuing my intent, my message that says, I want to buy an asset here and it should be settled on some other system. And this is what our Noma's intent system fundamentally does. Like it goes, people have intents, they don't have transactions that are specific to some blockchain. They have intents, like I want to buy some ETH for Bitcoin, I want to participate in this multisig. But they're not something that can be executed on any system. They're like, they need other people with whom they can either trade or be part participant in the multisig. Um, yeah, this is like, this is a complete new architecture in terms of how you build full stack decentralized applications in a way that's like not possible to do with existing systems. Like, I, this is not to say that existing systems are bad. It's just like they've made different trade offs in how they were designed and stuff. They come from a different historic context. Um, but it's very hard to retrofit something like Anoma into something like Ethereum because Ethereum was never designed with the idea of you have a declarative paradigm around intents and users have intents, not transactions. Because in Anoma, the fundamental unit is an intent. It's like me, it's a partial state change. It's like I'm saying I currently hold some Bitcoin and I'm willing to hold ETH 
if and only if I hold zero Bitcoin and I sold them at this kind of price. Um, and this is what users fundamentally sign and send around. And that's very hard to do in existing systems. It's so hard to do in existing systems that at, that's why people went to centralized services over the last, uh, since, since forever. It's why we had situations like Mt. Gox, like you said. It's why we had Celsius, Voyager, now FTX situation now, is that these, these centralized uh, services, uh, for better, because I use them too, uh, one of the main things that they do is they allow you to deposit one asset on one blockchain and very easily and quickly swap it for another asset on another blockchain and then withdraw it too. Uh, yeah. And so when, when something like this comes, you know, comes out, uh, but not just, you know, be released like it is now, but really uh, has the like user interface and user experience that people expect from centralized services, it, only then will big events like that, that negatively impact our industry cease to exist. Yeah. Like one of the cool things with Anoma and Intensus, so intents aren't consensus relevant, as in there can be 100 million intents and only 10 end up being settled somewhere. So it means you can do effectively, like you can quote a new price for a specific trade pair every half second or so. Like you can do things that you can't, but you can do this in a decentralized way because you have decentralized intent gossip which enables you to do decentralized counterparty discovery. And this is something like on, a, on top of a normal, you can start actually seriously considering building very good UX that looks function that like behaves functionality wise, very similar to the centralized kind of um, centralized parties right now. You mentioned something before uh, and you kind of just alluded to it again, is this like security assumption thing. Uh, and I think that's also a big problem today. Um, is that other than centralized services collapsing over the last year, we saw a lot of like bridges and unfortunately, like at the base, at the base layer, uh, blockchains like breaking and people losing a lot of money and things like that. Um, the reason that you can like in your analogy, go from one cell phone network to another or one country to another and use your cell phone as, as soon as you land the plane is that there's like a security standard across cell phone companies all over the world. Will we have that for blockchains? Um, I think not specific, not exactly like this, as in I think if users want to travel, let's say, to blockchains that are horrendously insecure, they can. Right? Like if you're flying to <laughs> some... Um, Sorry, it's funny. If you, I mean, the analogy is like if you're flying to some um, terrible third world country somewhere, um, you shouldn't trust the cell phone provider there either. Uh, they can yeah. still like intercept you and things like this, right? But it's more that I, I think what people currently got wrong in 2022 is that these bridge hacks were really a, they weren't inherent to the systems. They happened because people didn't use effectively custodial bridges. And when you think of like wormhole, wormhole is a multisig, that's it. It's not an actual blockchain to blockchain, communication like with ibc you trust the system that issued the asset and the system that you're on uh, with wormhole you trust the system that issued the asset the wormhole people and the system that you're on uh, uh, this is the same problem with like all these routing protocols whether this is like um the optimistic bridges or even something like axela it's always the same problem that like you add up the, you and you add this trusted third party and this third party may very well be a blockchain or some sort of multisig 
But the nice thing is with modern blockchains and IBC, you actually don't need to do this because you can just have light clients of either blockchain verify each other. And so you can just move directly between, let's say, Nia and Polkadot. And then if you want to move, if you want to have, if you have some Nia on Polkadot and you remove them to, let's say, Solana, what you should do is you shouldn't go directly to Solana. You should go Polkadot near to Solana. Uh, so you should always route your assets via the systems that created them. In, the, in this sense, you can start get this that's, decentralized on, routing. That's complicated. It's not. It's actually the most scalable thing because okay. um, as because right now all of the model is okay. We have these bridges, and whether these are centralized exchanges acting as sort of bridges or things like the Cosmos Hub acting as a bridge or something Axela, it's always all assets have to flow through these systems. As in, if I want to move an asset from A to B, I have to route it via this third party, which means there are like obvious attack points and bottlenecks. Um, but in sort of the actual decentralized uh, routing model, if all assets get routed by the systems that created them, not only is this trust minimizing, but we also start having tons of different routing points. And But we have a very clear understanding of which routing point should be responsible for routing which asset. Because if you created the thing, you should be able to route it. Um, and that's it. As a result, we get like a very easy routing table because we don't have multi-hop routing anymore. Um, and we just say, okay, if I need to like send a near one near from some chain to some other chain, I have to send it via near. Um, same for like ETH. If I have to send ETH from some chain to some ETH, other chain, I send it via Ethereum. Uh, reduces stress assumptions and reduces routing complexity massively. A good analogy is if like you have two countries that don't allow like financial transactions between each other, but then you have like a big uh, community of each other's peoples, like in each other's countries. And so if you don't have the ability at a, at a country level to facilitate transactions and trade, people are going to go towards the, the, the bad ways to do it. The scams, the frauds, the weak, insecure, yes. the, the junkets, if you will, as they have in the, the shadow banks and things like that. So you have to do it on it's a, actually a, on great a blockchain. Analogy. Yeah, I made it up just now. This is what we currently have. Like everyone's like, we have shitty routing systems. As a result, everyone ends up in these shadow banks that do the routing for them. Um, but like realistic, I mean, this is like how Swiss francs work. If you want to send Swiss francs to someone else, it effectively gets settled by the Swiss central bank. Same for the US dollar. It gets, gets settled by, uh, I think, the New York branch of the Fed. Yeah. Um, but so like every like currencies get routed by the systems that created them. We should do the same thing for blockchain-based assets. Um, it's I think it's like the obviously technical. And this is the interesting thing. I think in the long term, the right technical standards actually end up winning outside of sort of all the marketing hype, uh, simply because they're going to be the easiest systems to use in the long run. Um, so I'm very bullish that all these systems are actually going to flow to the surface, even if they're not very hyped right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. One of the the conversation topics that re- that kind of went to the wayside because of uh, fear is, is privacy. Uh, people stopped, you know, uh, executives in, in, uh, in positions at crypto companies and centralized services, crypto developers, people just stopped talking about privacy, even to a point where like privacy coins are getting delisted from like exchanges all over the world and things like that. Um, but privacy is also very important. And I even think that politicians agree that, that the idea of privacy is very important on like a base or protocol level. So why, why the pushback? Where do we go with this? Because 
privacy has been something that we've wanted on Bitcoin since 2010. So like it, it's, you know, it's, yeah. we're always going, human beings are always going to want to have privacy. Where do we, how do we, how do we build it? So I, I think there's a couple of things to this. Um, one, I think the quickest way, so I'm just very realistically looking at this space, the quickest way to get the entire space banned in the world is to move all of world finance onto Ethereum tomorrow, onto transparent Ethereum, because in two days, the NSA will go, wait, the fuck? China now does financial analysis like we do over the US financial system. This is not a good idea. We should kill this entire system immediately. Like no country wants a fully private system, wants a fully transparent system, because it just leaks so much of your citizens' data to potential enemies. Um, so I think to really get mainstream traction, we need privacy-preserving tech. Um, I think historically, the tech just wasn't there. Like when you look at something like Monero, like really bad privacy guarantees when you actually like try it out and try to de-anonymize it. When you look at something like Zcash, really good privacy guarantees, but you're tied now, for example, for some reason, your privacy guarantees are tied to this very specific asset of Zec. Um, yep. When you look at like Tornado Cash or Aztec on Ethereum, better privacy guarantees, but still you have split shielded sets. So I can see which asset you're interacting with. And importantly, you have to pay transaction fees in transparent ETH, which means like using them privately is very, very difficult. Um, but I think the other big thing is why Oh, I so think wait a minute. Misunderstand. Before you get to the very big thing that people misunderstand, and don't forget that thought, please. Are you saying that it's like it's like using Tornado Cash when you have to use ETH even though you're doing private transactions? It's like trying to money launder but pay for it with your credit card? Pretty much. It ex it ex exactly like this. Like you <laughs> yeah. buying privacy so, with your credit card. It is a bad idea. Don't forget what you're going to say. <laughs> um, no, this is more along the lines of uh, that like regulators and executives in these companies look at this um, in sort of a like terrified way. The thing is that like the way the financial system works, it's not that everyone has that like a single person in government has a view and key into all financial transactions. It's that there's a process by which you can obtain viewing rights into a certain subset of accounts. And um, like viewing keys in a in Zcash, for example, in the sapping circle, give you exactly this, where I as an end user, I can reveal my transaction graph, as in I can reveal who I interacted with, sort of who was behind me and who is in front of me. I can't reveal everyone else. So you can still ask people to comply with money laundering regulations all you want. It's just that you can't have a global view onto the system, which no reasonable person should want because it's a massive like national security threat because it not only means that you have viewing access, it means that everyone else is viewing access too. Um, and I think sort of, I'm very bullish on privacy. Uh, I mean, so we are building a privacy network called, or we're building a privacy system called Namada. Um, and Namada takes all the best of IBC. So it's completely asset agnostic and it upgrades the sapling circuit from Zcash to also make that asset agnostic. Um, and as a result, you get a single shared shielded set across all assets, whether this is DAI from Ethereum, Atom from the Cosmos Hub, Osmosis. Um, eventually, you can put me into this. So like anything that can be made IBC compatible can share a single privacy-preserving uh, like privacy set. Um, and I think that's going to be really trigger the next wave of like this like privacy tech adoption. 
because all of a sudden individuals can pay incredibly cheap transaction fees privately, um, get privacy for arbitrary assets, um, can move these assets between different blockchains. Um, and if an exchange needs to see sort of your transaction history, you can give them the viewing key and go, these are all the transactions I've done. These are the people that it has come from, and these are the people that have sent money to. Right? Like, ah, but you have the choice to selectively disclose this. Um, it's not that like all the exchanges hold one single private key that can view everything. It's more end users have to um, be okay with this sort of privacy invasion. And maybe you can compel people to do this the way governments currently compel people, right? But like, it's not that there's a single global viewing key, rather everyone individually gets privacy and everyone individually can selectively disclose their transaction history. I wanted to give a super good congratulations to our amazing sponsor, AngelBlock, on the launch of the AngelBlock protocol. Congratulations, guys. I know it's a long time coming. Um, it's hard work, especially building in a bear market. And we've been talking about AngelBlock for a while. But for those who don't know, uh, if you're a, a crypto investor, the AngelBlock protocol allows for non-custodial and on-chain fundraising, transparent vesting, and automated token distribution. You could invest in startups, DAOs, protocols, multiple chains, agnostics, all these different things, but with increased security, post-raise governance, which for me is huge, milestones for funding, regulatory compliance, on-chain transparency. Now on the other side, if you're a startup, you want to be on the other side of that because they can help you build out all of your technologies from your NFTs to your tokens. They have a huge community that everyone loves to be a part of. Uh, receive advisory and mentoring, legal, legal, strategic, technical, operations support, access to cap table management. I mean, this is the Web3 version of how fundraising and investing will take place. AngelBlock Protocol, thank you guys for supporting my show and I hope you guys enjoy. Uh, at the end of the day, there needs to be like a medium. There needs to be a, a, a way for us to do this um, without having to uh, trust either no one or trust everyone. And I think that's kind of the way you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like we need to find some middle ground where it's like, I mean, the US government tried this in the 80s, right? With the Clipper chip, trying to uh, insert the encryption backdoor into all microprocessors being chipped out of the States. And that didn't work for the same reason, because fundamentally, then you end up with like a single private key stored on some server that you becomes the biggest single biggest target in your country because you can Wait, tell us everything. about this. So what happened here? Oh, you don't know this? No. So this was like in the 80s. So like microprocessors were coming um, about, right? And so the US government had this idea of a clipper chip. Uh, effectively, you can think of this as a tiny addition to your CPU um, that had the ability to decrypt all encrypted messages within that CPU. Um, and so there would be a government server that could like read everyone's computer. And the government said like, oh, we will only do this for criminals, of course, um, and we will keep this key very secure. Um, and after about two years, this was killed because everyone's like, you can never keep this secure. Like, this is a matter of weeks before someone else brute forces your key or breaks yeah. the system, breaks the back door, right? Because it's like an obvious weak point. And so whenever we think of we want to have privacy-preserving tech, we need to build, I, I don't want to call them the backdoors, but we need to build like disclosure things in a way that they're so decentralized that there's not a single weak point that you can attack. Um, like you, you can't have a single key that can read all transactions. We need a way for 
to shard, like to split this access across many different people. And the obvious thing is you split it over the users. So every user individually can reveal. It's actually, imagine if there was uh, built into the, imagine in a world where everything was, uh, everything was on a blockchain from like your, your, your mortgage payments to your, to your paycheck, to your car payments and you're spending your credit card bills, things like that. But I'll, I got a private one where it's, where it's like you said, no, only P and you have a specific viewing key, which has its own rights and roles attached to that. So everything is private unless you want to choose who can see it and when. Imagine how easy that world will be. Imagine like how easy it'll be to pay taxes. Yeah. Just make your life like, easier. This is the obvious thing we should be doing. Uh, and this is the obvious thing that's going to happen, I think. Um, but like historically, especially for zero knowledge proofs. Ah, you brought up really the ZK. I'm so happy you brought up yeah. the ZK. <laughs> I was figuring out a way to transition into the ZK. This has been the two letters that I've been hearing a lot about on the past 50 shows or, or so, which tells me I really need to be paying more attention to this. Zero knowledge proof, things like uh, the ZK, ZK snarks. It's across all blockchains. Even in, even in Bitcoin circles, people are talking about this. What is a zero knowledge proof and why has it been attracting so much positive vibes across every blockchain? So zero knowledge proofs do two things. They do computational privacy, as in they allow me to keep private information private, but um, have a way where I can generate a proof that you can verify that even though you don't know the actual password, you know that I know the password, right? And the other thing is um, they allow you to do zero, uh, computation compression, as in instead of walking a thousand steps, um, I can verify that you walked a thousand steps by doing one step myself. Um, and so that's the two big applications of zero knowledge proofs. Um, in Amara, we are mostly deploying zero knowledge proofs for computational privacy, as in allowing privacy preserving transactions. Um, but in Anoma, we're doing both actually. So Anoma comes with a circuit called Tiger, which does, it's effectively a zero knowledge, um, it's a recursive circuit where you can have things like I have some intent from A to B, you have an intent from B to C. And then a third person can look at these two intents and go, oh, I can generate a zero knowledge proof of this state transition, but not from A to B to B to C, but rather from A to C. And then the tiger circuit in the actual settlement layer on Anoma verifies that this proof is correct. Uh, so we, yeah, we do a lot of circuit stuff. Um, it's nice. It, it, zero knowledge proofs are like by far the nicest thing coming out of cryptography, in my opinion, in the last like, 20 years. Can this be applied to Bitcoin? Um, Possibly. Um, so I think you can, for example, it's, it's much easier to do proofs about Bitcoin, right? Like one big challenge is if I'm on some other system, um, how do I verify the state of Bitcoin? How do I verify the state of specific addresses? Yeah. Um, that's really easy. To, uh, I mean, Bitcoin made some like historically relevant choices in hash functions, which make this practically hard right now, because like we don't have a good implementation for the Bitcoin hash functions in terms of in circuits. Um, but theoretically, this is by far the easiest thing to do, which is we generate proofs and even private proofs, like proof of reserves uh, over Bitcoin data to be able to verify them in other systems. Um, I think on the other side, like verifying proofs on Bitcoin, there, I think we're going to get there. But right now, it's still very hard to do these things within Bitcoin script. Um, 
yeah, this is going to get easier, I think, over time. Um, and I think at that point, Bitcoin actually becomes a very interesting global security layer. Because if you can like verify a circuit within Bitcoin, if you can run a ZK verifier there, you could have something like um, an Anoma L2 that checkpoints into Bit, like that drives it securely from Bitcoin. Um, uh, yeah, so there's like a ton of interesting things. I think this this is going to make Bitcoin way more extensible. And so, so Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin has just been chugging along, and there's always been a a pushback to do anything major because Bitcoin has always been this like hard, irreversible money that, and this is the very, one of the most important things is that you have uh, early transactions or early, you know, Bitcoin holdings that can never be, uh, you can't, uh, you don't have to force an upgrade. You don't have to force someone who has Bitcoin that they're not moving to, to, to do something now in order to upgrade onto the next level. It's reverse compatible. And so yeah. being this like large security chain has always been something that I would love to see and checkpointing into it uh, would be awesome. I, uh, our fund invested into a company called uh, Mint Layer that's trying to do something similar like this, like, like building an L2 on top of Bitcoin. Uh, and some of the other ones that I talked to are trying to do this too, but is checkpointing there? Can we, can we do it? No. I think not practically. Uh, so I'm not actually too deep in, so it's not my field of expertise. Yeah, I go into a tangent. I'm sorry. I think, yeah, no, this is, but I think practically speaking, if I sort of had one message for the Bitcoin dev community, I would say like, if you can make circuit verification easier within Bitcoin script, um, like this makes Bitcoin incredibly extensible in a way where you have to do this like once and then you never have to worry about it because the circuits under the hood can keep upgrading. Um, but that's sort of application specific detail. Um, yeah. Do you- so, uh, Bitcoin devs, ZK upgrades. <laughs> Make ZK like very easily verifiable on Bitcoin. And then we can like figure out how to deploy Anoma as an L2 to Bitcoin. Um, I'm gonna call them up. I'm gonna be like, you need to get this in there. Yeah, Some I mean, of the you know, this, this is like, I think everyone looks at all these blockchain people and go like, oh, you're always trying to like build like a specific blockchain. It's like, no, like I'm trying to build a specific architecture that I think is sort of the right thing to do for a decentralized counterparty discovery, distributed solving and programmable settlement. Um, but it should be deployed in many different ways. Like if you really care about Bitcoin security, there should be an option for you to take the Anoma architecture and have it be secured by Bitcoin. If you care about ETH security, there should be an option for you to take Anoma and have it be secured by Ethereum. If you trust the Swiss government, the Swiss government should take Anoma and also deploy it as a Swiss, backed by the Swiss uh. government, right? Like, um, we're building architectures here. Um, and I want to see this architecture deployed in many different security models. Are you enjoying building through this bear market? I mean, it's not my first bear market. So yes, um, to me, it was more surprising how how stupid people still were. Like, I mean, like you don't, I mean, the things I remember reading Tara White paper. I keep forgetting how stupid I am leaving money in some of these centralized places too. Still, I didn't learn my lesson. Same for me, like I've minimized this to some extent, but like, like, I mean, I remember like we read the Tara White paper when it came out back in 2018, 2019. I was still at Cosmos and we're like, we're sitting in the office reading this paper. And so the unanimous takeaway was there, is this an illegal North Korean shadow bank? Back, like know. sanctions by the South Korean government? I was like, 
this is like going to collapse. It just surprised me how long it took, if I'm honest. Um, yeah. I, so speaking of which, people um, don't learn. For then, for anyone listening, one of my friends uh, is uh, buys bankruptcy claims, and uh, um, unfortunately, we've been friends since the Mount Cox days. <laughs> Actually, Bitcoinica was the first. Is 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 a bankruptcy oh. that's still going on pre Mount Gox? That the same thing happened. Uh, so he's been buying claims since Bitcoinica, Mount Gox, Celsius, Voyager. Hopefully not FTX. Hopefully Binance <laughs> goes through with that. But uh, my email address is on untoldstories.com if anyone wants that that connection right there. Um, I, I can't tell you if it's going to be a good deal or not, but uh, have a private conversation with him. Uh, but that's sad. It's really sad sad i don't know what but else to the say thing is the, the problem is currently people don't have good alternatives i think um as in even the things people most people think of as decentralized or secure um like right now in the best case they can't run away with your money but in the worst case they can completely censor you right like if you're trading in OpenSea, it's not decentralized like yeah. OpenSea can't steal your funds outright but they can completely freeze your assets by refusing to uh, trade with them again like if you are currently holding funds on like starknet or optimism actually optimism is worse like if you hold funds on optimism they can freeze you um, really? and there's nothing you can do about it yeah um unless fraud proofs are implemented now but i Someone think like needs to develop last like... i checked yeah last i checked there was still it was effectively like a semi-custodial roll-up where like the, you kind of trust that the team is not going to censor you. Um, but if they do, you have a very hard time trying to get out of this. And this is like always the model right now that, but the problem is like, we, due to the fact that we're still stuck in this like generation two programmable settlement architectures, all these dApps look like this, but it's like the final settlement, yes, that happens in a decentralized fashion on some online system, but everything up front, like starting from counterparty discovery, starting to do some shared compute, um, that is all still pretty much centralized. And this is really sort of the innovation with Anoma that like you're trying to, we're trying to take all the centralized components of the rollups of the world, um, of sort of the NFT marketplaces of the world, of the DEXs of the world, where there's still a lot of very centralized components and try to decentralize the entire stack. So that you actually user, you actually get a fully full stack decentralized application where you don't have to worry like, oh, can this specific thing freeze my funds? Can this specific thing steal my funds? Because you don't know what the server under the hook does. Yeah. It's, you know what, we'll get there. We'll get there. And and there's a lot, there, a lot there is there. Um, there's so much out there that is centralized, decentralized, secure, and private. But I feel like the curation and the way we bring these products and applications and services to the end user, to the mass market, to the consumer, to the listeners, to myself, is not there yet. And uh, we'll continue talking about it, but we're out of time today, unfortunately. But Adrian, thank you so much for coming on, on Untold Stories today. We're going to have all your information in the show notes. I appreciate the time. Of course. Thank you for having me, Charlie. See you later.